0: seasons and uh, different stages of rebuilding. Some are flying, others are feeling like you're still rebuilding amidst the rubble, but um, all of us are in a season of rebuilding. And I want to be so bold as to say that 2020 was, for most churches, just a season of resilience. It was just like being pounded like in an MMA fight and you're underneath and you just like, just don't tap out, just don't tap out, you know, just don't tap out. And then the, 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 the season began to change. And um, now some of us are still taking shots and taking hits, uh, but there is a sense of moving from resilience to rebuilding. Now, rebuilding still requires resilience, but it's a different kind of resilience. It's, it's actually more proactive, more front-footed, It's more innovative. It's actually asking, like, do we just build exactly the same as before, or is there permission to build a little differently? And this is a time of great complexity, but massive opportunity. And so I want us to read together the the prayer of Ezra. And and Ezra and Nehemiah were these co builders um, after the, the exiles returned. Um, Ezra was the scribe, Nehemiah was the governor, and they, they, they were in this powerful partnership. And I, I love Ezra because um, he's a more retiring leader. He's, a, he's, he's not a natural leader. Actually, Nehemiah has to sort of pull him out of his study in Nehemiah 8 to actually read the book of the law. He's a little bit of a, an apologetic leader. But, but he's a leader nonetheless. And uh, we know that there are Nehemiahs here, front-footed, strategic, dynamic. And then there are other leaders a little bit like Ezra. that are like, "Oh, I want to, but I feel reluctant. Um, and, and maybe you were a Nehemiah that became more like Ezra. <laughs> because you realize, man, leading here, it's a funny thing. Like when you call for leadership, I mean, we, we're doing deacons training at the moment, retraining our deacons. And the hands are not flying up like they used to, because I think people now realize leadership is more about price than privilege, isn't it? And, and, and maybe that's good, maybe that's good, but Ezra is such a wonderful example of willingness and humility and innovation. So uh, read with me Ezra 9, 5 to 9. This is just as they are returning, uh, he calls a fast uh, before they, they, they return from exile, and now they've just returned and, and, and they're just starting to rebuild the wall and uh, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, rebuild the city. And it says, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, "O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. This is a prayer of rebuilding. And uh, we are going to go into a time of prayer after I skip through some some aspects of the way Ezra builds. And so before they, they rebuild, he calls a fast. And he has this beautiful little phrase that's repeated twice, grant us a little reviving he 's so wonderfully understated, yeah. and any of you that have heard teachings on revival i 've just been uh, teaching at a at a conference that that um it celebrated the Jesus People Movement, 50 years from the Jesus People Movement, and it was all about remembering revival um, and then trusting God for revival. And it's awesome, but sometimes when you when you get into kind of revival atmosphere, people are just so hyped, they try and make it happen, uh, there's it, it like manipulation, and Francis Chan uh, it was wonderful. He was like, you know, sometimes when I'm around Pentecostals and Charismatics talking about revival, it's almost like being in a wave pool, you know? It's like a wave pool. It's, it's cool and, 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 and it's fun, but it, it doesn't bear the beauty and the creativity of a real wave. And, and revival is not something we can manufacture. <laughs> That's pseudo revival. And I, and I think, I mean, my heart is so full revival. We've written a revival primer. We're all about it. But boy, there's a beautiful understated humility. Grant us a little reviving. <laughs> and then there's, there's, there's a wonderful sense of responsibility. It's not like, you're gonna revive us, Lord, and it's all gonna be fine. You're gonna do it all. It says, grant us a little reviving that we might rebuild the house in its ruins. In other words, revival is not God doing it all. Revival is God being the senior partner in the partnership, but we as junior partners have a role. Grant us a little reviving that we might rebuild its ruins. And so, and so, revival is God resuscitating His people. Revival, by its very nature, I think if you if you think about revival, and so many churches coming out of COVID because it's been so tough that it's like the only thing that's going to save us is revival. But, but, but we, we would very easily have this idea of revival taking place sort of at this crescendo, this wave where the favor of the culture and the strength of the church meet like nitrate and glycerine for this massive big spiritual explosion. And that's why we often think of revival, massive big stadiums jam-packed with people. But actually what we find in Scripture is revival happened At the lowest ebb of culture and the people of God. The very nature of revival is, think of the word, is resuscitating something that's almost dead. To revive someone, it's like a paramedic's word. Can you revive that body that's almost dead? And so there's no better time than now to talk about revival in the church. Because the culture is rising actually in hostility, not favor, towards the gospel. And the church is not living its best life now. What better time than to say, oh God, like Ezra, grant us a little reviving that we might. God loves to look at his people as Isaiah 52 says, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Smoldering wick he will not, he will revive it. He will revive it. And that's the heart of Ezra's prayer. So what do we see? Firstly, we see that that leaders, when they rebuild, they they rebuild upon a raised gospel foundation. Now, we know that this is the Old Testament. Uh, What is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. That's good theology. So Ezra is not clearly preaching the gospel, but like Abraham, he sees the gospel in advance. And we see it with the benefit of hindsight of going, oh, yeah, you're preaching the gospel. Oh my God, he says, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. That's the gospel. That's the bad news before the good news. I'm ashamed and I blush. One of the things that we need as we rebuild is to trust God for a blush again. We've lost the fear of God. We've lost a sense that each of us stand fallen short of the glory of God. And so rebuilding begins with a blush. of Actually, oh, I am not God. I am not holy. I mean, we we, we hear this preached to us by the culture. You are enough. I just want to say, that's a garbage. We're not enough. We are deeply loved. We are image bearers. But that image is is broken by sin. We are not enough. Jesus is enough. And so it begins with a blush of saying, our sins have reached over our heads. We're out of our depth. We can't save ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need a savior. Revival is doesn't begin with preaching good advice. You do this and do this, do this. It's good news that because we couldn't save ourselves, God sent His son as a saviour, and then he carries on to say, "Our sins have risen higher than our heads; our guilt has mounted up to heaven." Yet, that's the bad news. Yet, our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love. Isn't that the gospel? That while we were yet sinners, enslaved by sin, dead in our sin, God, in His great mercy, sent His son to us. He's preaching the gospel in advance, and I. I want us to see that that Ezra and Nehemiah weren't ultimately called to rebuild a wall or rebuild a temple, rebuild a city. They were ultimately called to rebuild the people of God around the Word of God. And we see in Nehemiah 8 that famous one where Nehemiah calls Ezra out of his study and says, The book of the law has not been read. Now get it up on a high platform. I want to tell you their pulpit (laughs) was a serious pulpit. You want to go into those like old European churches where you have to go up those swirly stairs and up on a high platform, it was red, which, 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 which represented the elevated authority of the word of God. I don't know what this says about the elevated authority of the word of God. But for 70 years in exile, the people of God have not heard the law of God. And as Ezra reads it, they began to weep because they realized our sins have mounted higher than our heads. And all day long, the whole day, the law is read to them. And then Nehemiah comes and he just says, do not weep, but go and feast for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When people like quote that little thing, I want to say, hey man, you're taking that straight out of context, man. You know, it's like, it's not just like, oh, the joy. Of the no, no, no. In, in the context of the gospel, realizing my sins are higher than my head, but actually I have a greater savior than my sin. And what we see really in advance is what the clever people call penal substitutionary atonement. This, Nehemiah 8, happened around the day of atonement where actually this Passover lamb was slain, that Christ the Passover lamb was slain as a substitute bearing the penalty of the sin that all of us are under. They were slaves because of their sin. And therefore, he has absorbed the just wrath of God and turned it to our favor. We stand with an imputed righteousness. That's the good news. That's why the joy of the Lord can be our strength because Christ died as a substitute in our place, to give us life and righteousness before God. God is so kind. The past year, as we rebuild, has been so divisive. And one of the primary reasons it's been divisive is that the gospel is not the highest foundation on which we are building. It's like, oh yeah, we we believe in the gospel, but this. And we elevate things that are disputable matters to gospel status. We've elevated our political leanings, political parties, convictions about vaccines, convictions about race, convictions about masks, and suddenly these things have been raised to a gospel. We haven't completely lost the gospel, but it's like down there, and that thing is highest. And I want to say, as you rebuild as leaders, I'm praying for courage that you de-elevate those things that have been elevated. It's not that they're not important, they're just not gospel. And I want to tell you, when we preach the gospel, it will confront both sides of the aisle. The gospel will confront Christian nationalism. The gospel will confront liberalism. The gospel will confront legalism on one side and licentiousness on the other side. And then people will go, oh man, I've made an idol of this thing. I might believe, but I've made an idol of it. Boy, when we hit vaccines... I was like, golly, not another thing to go through. Our governor has just passed a, a vaccine mandate. I mean, that same week, I had people come say, I'm out of here. And, and I get it. I think it's horrific. But I just had to ask, so, so has this become more important than the gospel? Like, like, are you looking at this through a gospel lens? I want to say, beloved, the only hope we have for rebuilding in unity is through the gospel that we look at everything through the gospel. Andrew Wilson has this idea of elevated truths of blood, ink, and pencil. In in other words, in in, in, in in the Bible, there's truth, but there's a hierarchy of truth. And what's happened is that we've taken things that Romans 16 calls disputable matters, and we have elevated them to blood level, gospel, and they're not, they're disputable. I've got a group of guys That meet in my home this Wednesday. One of the guys, good friend, he's been a teacher in the same uh, school for 22 years. He said, "I refuse to take the vaccine. I'm going to lose my job." And he said, "I know a bunch of you guys are vaccinated, which which they are." And he said, "You know, this is hard. I always thought that when we kind of drew a line in the sand for God, it would all be the same line together." And he's like, "I'm kind of disappointed." I loved it. I was just like, dude, what an opportunity to find unity in the gospel. Yeah. We ain't going to find unity in vaccine. Yeah. We ain't going to find unity in masks. If we do, I mean, we're not a church. We're a cult. Yeah. That's not unity. That's uniformity. Yeah. And I want to say, man, if we believe in the gospel, I mean, look at Jesus' first gospel team. How, how different they were. I mean, look at Luke for a start. And Peter, Dr. Luke, Peter the fisherman, would have never agreed on stuff. Think of Simon the Zealot. I mean, Simon the Zealot, he was, he was trying to overthrow the Romans. And then Matthew the tax collector, who was a puppet of the Roman government. And you just go, where are those guys going to find any agreement to rebuild? In the gospel. In the gospel. Please, preach a gospel that's bigger than your own pet convictions. You can be honest about your pet convictions, but if you preach that as gospel, you ain't gonna rebuild in unity. Otherwise, you'll rebuild real small and real boring because everyone will believe exactly the same thing. Come on, let's keep blood issues as blood issues. And then ink issues as ink issues and pencil issues as pencil issues. As leadership teams, I really encourage you to go, is that pencil or ink or is that blood? Am I gonna die on that hill? And actually, there's not too many hills to die on. Die on the hill of the authority of the word of God. Die on the, on the hill of Jesus as Lord. Yeah. Die on the hill of the triune God. Yeah. Die on, on the hill of penal substitutionary atonement. But don't die on other hills that are pencil hills. Oh boy, 18 minutes, here we go. Secondly, leaders rebuild in prayerful humility. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord saying, oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face. You know, what what I love about Ezra very quickly is that there's, there's no swagger in him. As he's rebuilding, he's not like strutting to the building site. He's actually... Rising from his knees from a fast and ripping his garment. There is an incredible humility in the guy. And I think one of the things that the Lord has done through COVID is to humble us. He's moved us from hubris to humility. Hubris is this kind of self inflated swagger. I got this. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that you and I are not in control. And that's really good. And that's really hard too. I was recently at a ministerial association with our mayor. we would doing this initiative for the homeless people in our, in our city. And it was great. And, but, but, but the guys were going around saying, what have you learned about COVID? And all these like super religious pastor friends of mine was like, I've just learned that the Lord is sovereign. I've just learned that the Lord is in control. It was like, oh, great. And I just stood up and I just said, I just learned that I'm not in control and I hate it. Let's just get real here. But you know, prayer, prayerful humility is actually easy for people who've come face to face with their own limitations. We're not in control. So what do we do? (laughs) We bow our knees. We tear our garments. We fast for the one who is in control. John Wimber said, never trust a leader without a limp. Don't conceal your limp. Take your limp. To God in prayer, the Lord loves it. Three leaders rebuild with an innovative remnant. He says in his prayer, but now, we've been in slavery, but now for a brief moment, the Lord has shown us favor to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold in this holy place. A remnant is another word for a kind of a small motley crew that are not particularly impressive but are willing. So there was this willing remnant that came back from exile. Not everyone was willing. And these people were slaves. These people for 70 years had been without temple. They were pretty backslidden. In fact, the chapter before Ezra had confronted them for intermingling with other nations. They they were pretty worldly. But they were willing love that it's like God said you'll do (laughs) and I wonder if as as leaders certainly this is my story I've looked around you know in the rebuilding of the wall Nehemiah and Ezra really struggled with the nobles the nobles were unwilling but then there was this rabble this remnant who who were not noble but they were willing I've looked around at our church and gone Quite a few of the nobles have gone. The people like in the previous season, they had like credibility and respect and they were the bigger givers. And they just got like the hell in. Can I use that word in Texas? I'm I'm not sure if I can. But it's in the Bible. But I don't know. And they just just left. And then God brought these like other people that weren't as impressive. They were just like, here we go. I mean, it reminds me of of Paul. He's like, there's not many among us that were saved that were impressive in the flesh, he says. It's beautiful. God just says, they'll do, they'll do. If you have been pruned in your leadership team, it's for fruitfulness. And trust God that a remnant, God will give a remnant a secure hold. People who are humble, people that don't walk with a swagger, People that walk certainly with boldness, but it's not a self-confidence. It's a confidence in God and His promises. They'll do. And you know what was amazing about this remnant is that they they had a mix of feeling about how the building was going up. They weren't all stoked. And I love this. In, In Ezra 3, they've just finished the foundation of the temple, and there's this very poignant moment where this remnant are celebrating, and it says this in, in, in Ezra 3, 11 to 13, he says, Then all the people, this is the remnant, gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Levites and family who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouting from that of weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. This remnant that came, some knew the grandeur of Solomon's temple. You know what? This rebuilding, it was not quite as grand. And so the people that knew it, they were like, this sucks. <laughs> and they were weeping, even though they're building, they're weeping, they're lamenting. And the people that didn't know anything better, just, this is awesome. <laughs> and they couldn't distinguish the two, and the sound was heard from far away. It was, like, it was like it was a beautiful sound. I want to say, as you rebuild, be okay to rebuild with both weeping and rejoicing. Be okay to rebuild with some people that go, I miss this, I miss that, I miss that, but I'm willing. And other people just say, this is the best things in sliced bread. Love it. I think as we rebuild, we've got permission to innovate. I mean, the fact that God's design for that temple was not the same as God's design for Solomon's temple. I love that. It's like God's word is the same, but his ways change. And God is saying, those people will do, and this design will do for now. And I just think it's an opportunity for you to go, we did that before. Do we have to do that now? Do we have to do that ministry now? No. One of the things as leaders, as our eldership team have gone, you know, you know those people that always say, I'll join your church if you open this ministry. Right. Those people. Those people were nobles who left. Yeah. So I just said to the church, we're not going to do that again, okay? We've been ripped down to the studs, and we're going to keep it simple, and if you're going to leave, if we don't open up that ministry, rather just leave. Yeah. Because actually we're going to do what God designs for now. We've got in our Fullerton downtown city, we've got this road that they've changed the name. It's called it was called Wilshire. They've changed the name now to Walk on Wilshire Boulevard because they've blocked all the cars off. During COVID, it was awesome because we had to eat outside. And now they're going, this is a good idea. Let's keep this permanently. And they've changed the name of it. I just keep on saying to our, our, our church leaders, what's our walk on Wilshire things? That's just like, we had to pivot and change, and now we're keeping it this way. And I just encourage you to have those conversations. How is God calling you to innovate? And it might be a lot simpler, might be a lot less sexy, but it's making disciples. Ultimately, if it makes disciples, who will make disciples? Like, Do it. And if it doesn't, don't do it. I think we've had permission to do that. A couple of ways that we've tried to innovate and get back to simplicity. We're saying, after COVID, we want more contributors and less consumers. After COVID, we want more prayer and less programs. After COVID, we want more family and less silos. What do I mean by that? During COVID, we just had to have everyone in. Even the kids sat through my message. I had to shorten my message. That was terrible. <laughs> Except everyone else thought it was awesome. <laughs> but, but, but now, afterwards, we're like, okay, let's not just go back to our silos. I mean, we believe in college ministry and youth ministry. and kids. We do. But actually, we used to have kids once a month in worship. Now we just have them every Sunday. You don't have to do that. But we were like, we're going to keep that. We're going to be bold enough to do that. And it seems to be working. We're still growing. I'm just saying, man, be a little risky because you don't have to put on that program. If it's making disciples, check it out through that. Finally, leaders rebuild with an expectation of the Spirit's power. Grant us a little reviving and brighten our eyes that we might set up the house of God to repair its ruins. This is so understated just a little reviving. It's so responsible as well that we might set up the house of God. God's not going to do it for you, but He will brighten your eyes. He'll give you a new vision. He'll give you a new vigor. Only other time this brighten your eyes phrase is used is with Jonathan and the honeycomb. When Jonathan in battle took the honeycomb and it said, And his eyes were brightened. He was in battle. We're still in battle. The Lord wants to enliven us. I encourage us to be churches that are anchored in the gospel, unapologetic, but that we have the sense of anticipation and expectation that God will come and revive his people. I'll leave you with this picture of how perhaps the church can be anchored and centered in the gospel, but also living with a sense of, oh, God, come and revive your people. Grant us a little reviving. I think it's a little bit like a news channel, a reliable news channel. (laughs) Tell me where you find one. (laughs) But you find a channel that's objective, that tells the truth, that tells it as it happened, And you go, man, I'm going to go to that channel because they're not lopsided. They're not subjective. They're not giving a slant. They're telling the gospel truth. That's what our churches should be. People come and they say, those guys aren't on their own opinions and fads. They just preach the gospel. They find Jesus in whatever passage they can. And, man, we can take it to the bank. They are reliable. But, you know, every good news channel has a weather bureau. They have a woman or man who stands up and says, tomorrow we think it's going to be this. No one sues the weatherman if they get it wrong. (laughs) Because it's actually not an exact science. It's predicting. But a weather channel is awesome because it helps you to prepare for tomorrow. Do I wear a jacket? Do I eat outside? Will the giant size, hawk size... Houston mosquitoes get me or not? Is there going to be a hailstorm? And, and I mean, even if they get it 60, 70% right, you're like, I'm thankful that it's not just news, it's weather. Churches that are gospel-centered but spirit-empowered are ones that are reliable in news, but full of anticipation of weather. What's God going to do next? And how do we get ready for it? I so often go into churches that are, oh, we're Bible, we're gospel-centered, And it's great, but it's just flipping boring. It's just so predictable. There's no sense of interruptibility. I just want to say, man, if we're praying this prayer, grant us a little reviving. We'll be a little bit more interruptible. And we won't get weird because we're anchored in the gospel, submitted to the authority of God's word, but there'll be a sense of, which way are you blowing, Lord? And let's get ready for that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for this prayer. Thank you that you're calling us as leaders to rebuild. And some of us are around the rubble, but give us courage, Lord, to be innovative, to be humble, to be courageous, to be expectant. Lord, you revive your people, not when they're living their best life, but when they're at their lowest ebb. What better time for you to grant us a little reviving? I'm gonna ask you quickly to get up in groups of five to seven. And we're gonna pray through these four things. We're gonna pray that the Lord would revive us, that we might rebuild in our churches. Won't you stand up?